Hello, thriller and paranormal fans, and welcome to episode two of Helen Powers, The Ghosts of Thorwald Place. I'm Meredith, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on The Ghosts of Thorwald Place, Rachel Drake is an agoraphobic shut-in living in a secure doorman building called Thorwald Place. One night, she receives a mysterious phone call that sends her on the run, but on her way to the parking garage, she is brutally murdered in the elevator. Now a ghost, she is tethered to her death spot and can only haunt the apartments adjacent to the elevator until she is pulled away when it's called. She's observed some of her neighbors, including an aging trophy wife whose husband is straying, a surgeon whose husband is on his sickbed, and a TV medium who's planning a seance. Will this seance be a chance for Rachel to communicate with the living? Eleven. There are a lot of things I miss about being alive. The warmth of the sun on my face. The feeling of a cool summer breeze rustling my hair. The gentle aroma of my mom's freshly baked butter pecan cookies enveloping me and making me feel safe. There are a million little comforts I wasn't able or willing to appreciate during the last years of my life. I would give anything to experience just one of them again. But the comfort I miss most is sleep. Ever since my husband's death, I've lived life frenetically, never truly stopping and never truly enjoying life's little luxuries. Although I suffered from mild to moderate insomnia, I never noticed how much I had grown to rely on sleep's brief escape. The chance to close my eyes and reopen them hours later. The feeling of slight refreshment when I emerged from a night of dreamless freedom. Or, when my sleep was plagued with nightmares, the sensation of relief I experienced upon returning to the real world. Of course, the relief was always inevitably followed by a wash of disappointment and dread. But those few moments of reprieve made it all worthwhile. Toward the end of my life, the despair that accompanied awakening had begun to fade into a dull desolation. I could return from slumber without wishing I had never awoken. Now, I wish I could experience that once again. I wish that this were all just a nightmare, and I'll wake up in my cold, empty apartment, forever alone but alive. Likewise, I yearn for sleep. I wish I could escape this reality, if only for a few hours. But sleep eludes me. Ghosts don't sleep. I have been actively avoiding Will and my old apartment. I know he is still staying there because I occasionally see him in the hall when the elevator idles on the seventh floor. Henry Sanford, the elderly man who dwells in apartment 707, sits in his lazy boy chair and listens to an old 1930s radio program every waking hour. 
He listens to the same one over and over on repeat. The shadow. I feel as though I could recite it from memory. Accompanying him has been preferable to watching a complete stranger rifle through my personal belongings. Why is Will still here? Why hasn't he liquidated my assets and moved on? While Thorwald Place is a nice apartment building, with deluxe facilities and in a prime location, the property taxes are astronomical. Although, from the little my husband told me about his brother, I can assume that Will may not be smart enough to come to these conclusions on his own. My irritation morphs into anger as Will steps onto my elevator. Try as I might, I cannot avoid him when he is the one directing my afterlife. Oblivious to my presence, he taps the button for the basement. My anger mounts with every story we descend. I want him to go, to leave me alone in this hell. But he's been here for several days, and I fear I may never be rid of him. Is this my punishment? My husband's death was my fault, and now I am forced to see his face for the rest of eternity? When we reach the basement, Will exits the elevator, but he doesn't go to the fitness center, the storage room, or the parking garage. My anger tapers off and is replaced with curiosity. What's he doing? He appears to be studying the hall. He strolls up and down the corridor, peering at the papered walls, inspecting the wall sconces, and gawking at the ceiling. My mouth drops open when he suddenly gets down on all fours and begins to crawl the length of the hall. It looks like he's scrutinizing the faded carpet. I press my lips tightly together to contain a giggle. I know that he has his addictions, but I wonder what kind of drug would induce this peculiar reaction. My gaze is drawn to the steel door that leads to the storage units. Not unlike my last visit to the basement, I feel an overwhelming impulse to approach it. Don't be an idiot, I mutter. The door seems to beckon to me. I'm suddenly only two feet away from it, but I don't remember moving. How did that happen? I glance back at Will, but he's still flat on the floor. I turn back to the door, and I'm closer still. What lies beyond it? I don't want to know. I don't want to see that little girl again. I enter the storage room. My hypnosis fades away as soon as I pass through the door, yet I don't turn back. I don't leave. Instead, I look around. There isn't a living soul in sight. I glance toward the far corner of the girl with no eyes, but she isn't there. I release a sigh of relief. But that introduces another question. If she isn't here, then why was I compelled to enter? The naked store mannequin grins at me, mockingly. I tear my gaze away, turning to leave. I jump at the sight of the little girl blocking my path. She's standing between me and the exit. Her hollowed eye sockets seem to consume the light around them. Her mouth sluggishly opens into a silent scream. All the hairs on my arms stand on end. What are you trying to say to me? I ask her, fighting my instinct to simply run. 
She's just a child. She can't possibly hurt me. Can she? The girl cocks her head. I know she can definitely hear me. Her mouth remains open wide, a dark hole. I cannot see her teeth or tongue, just a bottomless black void. Bit by bit, she raises her arm until it lies in a straight line with her shoulder. Her finger extends, points over my shoulder. I whirl around and peer into the darkness beyond. At first, I see nothing out of the twisted ordinary I've come to expect down here. The sneering mannequin, the stacks of dilapidated cardboard boxes, a bundle of what looks like firewood presses against the chicken wire to my right. But the building has electric fireplaces, so I try not to wonder what the wood could possibly be used for. A rolled-up oriental rug leans against the wire on my left. Then, something moves. I narrow my eyes, straining to see in the darkness. A darkness that seems to gather, collecting shadows and assembling a form. It twists and writhes and combines and builds to create a silhouette. A man so tall that he must hunch so he won't hit the ceiling. A man so broad that he fills the entire corridor. He is only a silhouette, but I can make out the outline of a thick cloak and a bowler hat. I don't know how I can tell, but his back is toward me. I shiver as he deliberately turns to face me. He has no face. No features, no discernible characteristics other than the hat and cloak. He is simply a shadow. I glance toward the girl, but she is gone. The silhouette approaches me, leisurely, thick arms outstretched, snaking toward me. Recognition hits me. I know him. He was there the night I died. I barrel out of there, moving as fast as I can, which doesn't feel fast enough. At the exit, I glance over my shoulder. He's pursuing me. The distance between us closes with every chilling second. I burst through the door, back into the light of the corridor. Will is still here. He's by the door to the fitness center, scribbling in his cursed notebook. We need to get out of here, I cry. He hears nothing. He sees nothing. He does not move toward the elevator. He does not move toward safety. Like a bullet, I shoot down to the opposite end of the hall, the furthest I can get from the steel door. I wait, the phantom of my heart pounding in my chest. The shadow man does not follow into the light. Languidly, without a care in the world, Will caps his pen, tucks his notepad in the back pocket of his jeans, and calls the elevator. August 31st. Dear Diary, Sorry for leaving you in suspense like that. My hand spasmed, and I had to find Jay to massage it for me. I'm really taking advantage of having a husband at my beck and call. I'm convinced that this house is haunted. 
The more I think about it, the more I notice abnormal events that point to us having our very own Casper. It started off subtle, but last night, things escalated. I'll tell you what happened, and you can decide for yourself. I woke up and rubbed my eyes, checking the clock. It was two in the morning. I'm usually a sound sleeper, and I rarely wake until the alarm clock radio blasts Lady Gaga into my ear. I sat up, looking for Lon Chaney Jr., but he was curled up in a ball at the foot of the bed, fast asleep. It couldn't have been him who woke me. I sat in bed for a minute before deciding I had to pee. Just before I put my foot on the ground, I heard a loud creak from the hallway, right outside the door. I gulped and pulled my foot back into the bed, remembering the scene where the demon yanked on the main character's exposed leg in Paranormal Activity, a movie Catalina forced me to see, and part of me has never forgiven her for it. I sat perfectly still, clutching my pillow to my chest, straining my ears, struggling to hear any other sound. Just as I began to relax, I heard another creak, followed by another. They seemed to be getting louder, like the entity was getting closer to the bedroom. I whirled around and shook Jay. What is it? Am I snoring again? He mumbled and rolled over. No, I hissed. There's someone or something in the hall. Jay opened one eye. Something? I nodded vehemently. You need to investigate. Again, I listened. There was another creak. I grabbed the lamp, ripping the plug from the outlet. Jay sat up, staring at me like I was a lunatic. Take this, hurry. Instead of taking the lamp, Jay reached under the bed and pulled out a baseball bat. He rolled out of the bed. Another creak resounded from the hall. Jay was suddenly fully awake. Stay here, he said. I nodded. I counted the seconds until Jay returned a torturous four minutes later. The bat was loosely grasped in his hand. What was it? Did you see it? I asked earnestly. See it? Jay looked at me funny. No one was there. It must have just been the sound of the house expanding. This confirmed my worst fears. Some part of me was hoping that there had been an intruder in the house. Burglars and serial killers are a lot easier to defeat than poltergeists. Probably. I don't actually have experience with trespassers, living or dead. This was just the most recent of many strange occurrences in the house. Sometimes I misplace something, like my keys or my hairbrush, and I just know that it isn't my fault. I may not be the tidiest person, which aggravates Jay to no end, but everything has its place, and I never misplace my hairbrush. Even the cat has noticed something off in this house. Lon Chaney Jr. sometimes gets a determined look in his eye. He spends hours stalking around the house, sniffing the air. I did some research, and ghosts are often accompanied by a sulfur smell. Maybe only Lon Chaney Jr. has a powerful enough nose to smell it. 
Sometimes I follow him on all fours, sniffing the air behind him, but I can't smell anything. Jay walked in on me doing this once, which was the last time I tried to smell a ghost. I hadn't said anything to Jay about my suspicions, because they were just that, suspicions. But after last night, I'm more than just suspicious. I'm starting to believe. 12. Sabrina knows. Earlier tonight, she ate a dinner that consisted solely of a bottle and a half of champagne. Afterward, she put her glass in the dishwasher and made her way down to the library. She's been sitting in the leather chair closest to the door for hours. Every time my elevator is called and I'm pulled away, I wonder if she'll still be there when I return. Whenever I make my way back, she still sits there, unmoving, hands clasped, eyes distant. A few residents enter the library, and Sabrina doesn't seem to register their presence. No more is she the desperate housewife, eager for attention and friendship. No more is she the doting wife, dying to please her unfaithful husband. She sits and waits, lips pursed, eyes distant, without movement except for the occasional glance at her diamond Cartier watch. Melody strolls in at around half past eight. She browses the shelves, not just looking at mystery novels this time, but fiction and biographies. She gathers several books, but she doesn't leave. Instead, she sits on the couch across from Sabrina and reads. Keeping one eye on the lonely socialite, I inspect Melody's reading selection. There appears to be a common denominator among all the books she chooses. Each of them features an abused wife or girlfriend who gathers the courage to escape her oppressor. Melody reads carefully, her beautiful nose crinkled in concentration as she absorbs every word. This is progress. She needs to leave her husband before he does something she can't come back from. But this isn't the way to do it. I gave her resources on the phone. She should find a women's shelter and leave when her husband is at work. I suppose that the books are giving her the courage she needs to make that difficult decision. While the choice should be obvious, it's clear to me that Melody loves her husband, and I understand that becoming a single mother is not a decision to be made lightly. I had hit the jackpot with a loving husband who didn't have a cruel bone in his body. But not everyone can be as fortunate as I am. Was. Sabrina checks her watch and abruptly stands, approaching the library door. She holds it ajar and peers down the hall toward the guest suite. A delivery man stands at the door to the suite, jostling a large bag of takeout in one hand so he can knock with the other. When the door finally opens, Roger steps out, wearing nothing but a bathrobe. He takes the food, tips the delivery man, then disappears back into the room. If he had so much as glanced down the corridor, he would have seen his wife. Sabrina pries her white-knuckled grip from the door handle, allowing it to swing closed. Melody looks up curiously, but she doesn't say anything. 
Something in Sabrina's expression makes her quickly avert her gaze. Sabrina leans against the wall, taking several deep breaths. Her face is drawn. Her carefully applied makeup does nothing to mask her anguish. She stands there, perfectly rigid, for five, ten, twenty minutes. Then we return to her empty apartment. Thirteen. The next morning, I'm loitering in the lobby, waiting for the elevator to drag me away, when my past and present collide. The front doors of the building swing wide open, bringing the dazzling golden light of the morning sun, a gust of cool autumn air, and a familiar face. Catalina. Elias nearly trips over his feet as he rushes to greet her. He's one of many barriers against unwanted visitors in this high-security building. They don't allow police officers in, but of course, psychos wielding knives slip through the cracks. Catalina ignores Elias and scans the wide, empty lobby. I know that she's establishing her dominance with him. She shared that trick with me not long after we met. She's letting him know that she's in charge and that she alone will choose when to speak. I grin. <laughs> I've missed her. Eventually, she deigns to speak to him. I'm Detective Catalina Marquez. Catalina pulls a badge from her blazer pocket and waves it in front of his face. I'm working the Rachel Drake murder case. Detective. She must have gotten a promotion in the last two years. A goofy grin spreads across my face. She had often spoken of how hard it was to move up in the police force in Ottawa, especially as a woman and a person of color. But here she is, a detective. And she hasn't even hit 30 yet. Elias turns pink. Of course, anything I can do to help. Rachel and I were quite close, and I know everything about every resident in this building. There's a hint of desperation in his tone, but I don't blame him. Catalina is a stunning woman. Her statuesque figure and striking features are both intimidating and alluring. Once it is made known that she's with law enforcement, she has both men and women alike eating from the palm of her hand. She's aware of the effect she has, but fortunately, she doesn't use it for evil. I haven't seen Catalina in person since she helped me to run away two years ago. She was the only person to believe me when I said my life was in danger. She had had the intelligence, resources, and determination to help me escape. Together, we found Thorwald Place, an apartment building safely nestled in the center of a bustling city a place where I could just be another anonymous face in the crowd. Disappointment weighs against my chest. I won't be able to interact with her. I won't be able to tell her my fears over Rocky Road ice cream, like when we were in university. I won't be able to share the pathetic details of my life or tell her about Luke, my only friend in this backwards life. I won't be able to ask her about her own news. Has she gotten over her breakup with Daniel? She must have. It's been over two years. Is there someone new in her life? Is she married? I glance down at her left hand. 
There's no ring, but I notice that her hand is clenched into a fist. I scan Catalina from top to bottom. The initial excitement of seeing her is replaced with concern. She looks tense. I have no doubt in my mind why she's here. She's here because I was brutally murdered in the elevator, just feet away from where she stands. She's here because she knows that despite our best efforts, he found me. She's here to catch my killer. But why isn't she in Ottawa arresting him? What can I do to help? Elias asks again, his voice suddenly high-pitched. Book me the guest suite. I'm going to be here a while. Catalina drops her small bag in the guest suite and immediately heads to the elevator bay, tapping the button. I smile when it's my elevator that greets her. Finally, the universe does something in my favor. Catalina managed to convince Elias that he wasn't needed for her investigation, which was a relief, because he's already quite smitten with her, and I doubt she'd be able to get much done with his unwavering attention focused on her. Elias is married to his work, and sometimes it's easy to forget that underneath that professional, attentive exterior is a red-blooded male. Catalina brings that side out of everyone, I suppose. She boards the elevator and presses the number seven. The doors slide shut. I study her as the elevator begins its gradual ascent. She's staring down at the elevator floor, a frown marring her face. She must know this is where I died. I'm okay. I immediately feel guilty for the white lie. We never lied to each other. She doesn't hear me anyway. She brushes away a stray tear with the back of her hand before stepping off the elevator. She marches up to my front door and knocks authoritatively. I drift through the wall into my living room. Will is lingering by the front door. He seems to be debating whether or not to answer it. I pop back into the hall, where Catalina is reaching into her pocket, retrieving the key I'd given her when I'd moved in. She doesn't have to use it because the door swings open. Catalina lets out a strangled noise, mouth agape. She must have forgotten about the twin brother, as I had, if only for a moment. Will extends a hand. I'm Will, the brother-in-law, he says quickly. Oh, Catalina's skin is about three shades paler than usual, and she looks like she might be sick. I've never seen her so frazzled before, not even back at the crime scene when she first saw all the blood. My husband's body limply displayed to torment me. She had remained cool, calm, and collected. But this rattles her. Would you like to sit down? I take it you knew my brother, Jay, then? Will asks. Catalina nods curtly, then walks toward the kitchen and takes a seat at the head of the table. My place. I frown at the irritation that pricks at my nerves. She couldn't have known that. Will pours tap water into a glass and hands it to her. Eyeing him over the rim, she takes a slow sip. Her habitual confidence is gradually returning. She seems annoyed that Will has seen her in a vulnerable state. I'm Detective Catalina Marquez, 
she says, after a few moments of quiet scrutiny. I'm investigating your sister-in-law's murder. With a jolt, I realize that her voice has changed over the last two years. Her accent is less thick, and she barely even rolls her R's. Catalina takes another sip of water. I was one of the responding officers to your brother's... murder. I am very sorry for your loss. Both of them. She's incorrect in assuming that Will and I had ever met. I frown. I'd caught a glimpse of Will at Jay's funeral, but we had never met prior to that. The days after the attack are a blur, and I still cannot remember if we have ever been formally introduced. I can't recall if I ever told Catalina about Jay's lack of a relationship with his brother. Thank you, Will says. He stands behind the chair opposite her, his entire body rigid. He doesn't sit down, and it's clear that he wants her to leave. Catalina continues to watch him, taking small sips from her glass. She's a master at reading people. She always manages to glean their motives and get them to talk. She never fails. Are there any questions that you have for me? Will asks. Catalina slowly lowers the glass, allowing the tension to build. I'm curious about why you're staying here, is all, she replies. I'm relieved that she notices this is unusual. Maybe she can convince him to leave. Will is quiet, as if he's carefully selecting his words before speaking. My parents inherited the place. I'm staying here until I can get an apartment of my own in the city. He isn't lying. I had left everything to Jay's parents in my will, but I can tell he's only giving a half-truth. It doesn't explain his fascination with my personal belongings. He's hiding something. It's unclear whether or not Catalina can also tell that he's holding back. I believe that Kay's killer could be the same person who murdered your brother. There are several startling similarities between their deaths, the first of which being the choice in murder weapon, the second being the sheer brutality of the kill. Will flinches. I'm sorry, Catalina says, her eyes widening slightly. That was insensitive. You're suffering from the loss of two loved ones. I frown. She sure is laying on the sympathy thick. Is that a cop trick? To get him to loosen up and admit something? Again, Will doesn't tell her that he barely knew me. I also notice that Catalina is omitting the fact that she knows who killed my husband. I assume that she at least suspects that it was he who killed me. Neither of them are being truthful to each other. Frustration bubbles up inside me. I just wish I could get the full story. When did you get here? Catalina asks, gesturing around the apartment. About five days ago. It was four days ago. Have you found anything in the apartment that might be of use to the police? I assume that you've had a chance to look around, having been here for about five days and all. Will gives her a strange look. I have looked around, but I haven't found anything that could lead to her killer. How would you know? You're not a detective, Catalina says with a little bite. Will frowns. No, 
but the detectives have already been through the apartment. They didn't find anything. Catalina glares at him. You wouldn't mind if I took a look around, would you? Will's tension leads to open hostility. Unless you have a search warrant, I think it would be best if you left. Catalina raises an eyebrow. She places the glass on the table and gets up to leave. Your cooperation would be appreciated, but it's not necessary. I'll be back. She glides from the apartment, the front door slamming shut behind her. Will scowls even deeper now that she's gone. He stalks out of the room and I trail after him. He stops abruptly in the doorway to my office. He flips on the light and stands there, arms crossed over his broad chest. He has done some significant redecorating. My framed landscape photos have been removed from the wall and are propped up against the desk. In their place, the wall is plastered with papers from floor to ceiling. I float through Will to take a closer look. Newspaper clippings, loose pages, internet printouts. All about my husband's murder. All about the people from my former life. I step toward the wall. There is a class graduation photo of me beaming at the camera. Beneath it, there's a rare photo of me and Luke together, taken nine months ago. We're beaming at the camera from the top of the CN Tower. It was one of the few times that I'd let Luke convince me to leave my apartment building for something that was non-essential. He'd been so excited to show me around the city, viewing me as a tourist, even though I'd technically been living here already for over a year. I look carefree in this photo. You would never know that only a few hours later, I had a debilitating panic attack when I thought I saw him on the street, and that I haven't left Thorwald Place since. And I never will. I tear my eyes away from Luke's smiling gaze. I scan the rest of the wall. Newspaper articles about my death are pinned beneath my class graduation photo. To the right are rows upon rows of photos of people, at first, I don't recognize anyone. Then I see Oliver Boyden's face. Then Roger Highland's. These are the residents of this building. There is a giant red X scrawled across Alexei Utkov's sullen photo. Out of country is written in block letters at the bottom of the picture. The realization hits me just as the elevator rips me away. Will is investigating my death. 14. Sabrina lies in bed despite the early evening hour. An empty wine bottle sits on the nightstand. Roger will be annoyed to see it when he returns from his tryst. Sabrina hasn't taken the news of her husband's infidelity well. She needs to get out of the apartment, see a therapist, leave her husband, and move on. But I fear she isn't strong enough for these difficult decisions. I watch her toss and turn for several minutes before I leave. While I don't have any reason to assume that the living can sense me, the last thing I want is for Sabrina to feel the disquiet of a ghost haunting her bedside. As I drift past the living room toward the front door, something catches my eye. 
a slip of black fabric protrudes from under the table in the foyer. Curious, I move closer for a better look. It's a single black leather glove. Memories of my death rush back to me, the strong hands that gripped me, fending off my feeble struggles. Strong hands wearing thick leather gloves. I peer closely at the glove, but I can see no indentation where my teeth would have broken the skin. I shake my head, pulling back. Many people own leather gloves, and I wasn't even sure of the color because I never got a look at them. Besides, why would Roger Highland want to murder me? Unless he had mistaken me for someone else. With a jolt, I notice that my hair is very similar to Sabrina's, but without the $300 style and color. I push away these dark thoughts. Why would Roger want to kill his wife when he seemed to have it all? A loving, doting wife who cooks meals for him and a lover on the side. Just because he's willing to cheat on his wife doesn't necessarily mean he wants her out of the picture. There's a big difference between infidelity and murder. I ponder this as I enter apartment 601, which I haven't visited since the day after I died. The conventional couple with the unconventional son. The last time I visited, they'd been eating dinner in an awkward, uncomfortable silence. I read the names on a cable bill, sitting on the kitchen counter. Mr. and Mrs. Charles Yu. The couple are seated in the living room watching Jeopardy. Charles is flipping through a men's health magazine on his tablet. His wife is crocheting what looks like an oversized sock. I drift down the hall and enter the first bedroom on the right. The lights are off. A thick black candle sits on the nightstand. Its quivering flame casts sharp, dancing shadows. I drift farther into the room, glancing at the walls, which are plastered with obscure dark posters of heavy metal bands. Music plays faintly, a raspy voice crooning about how he wants to slit his lover's throat. I shiver, vividly recalling how that felt. The used teenage son sits on his bed, thumbing through a thick, leather-bound book. His face is painted white, accented with scarlet eyeshadow and glossy black lips. In the darkness, the effect is even more surreal. He wears a black mesh shirt and tight leather leggings. That can't be comfortable loungewear. I step over to his desk to look for something with his name on it. The workspace is covered in loose pages, each depicting disturbing charcoal drawings. But on the edge of the surface, I find what I'm looking for, a calculus test dated last week, labeled Clark U. I stifle a chuckle and turn back to the bed. He doesn't look like a Clark. I wonder what kind of goth name his friends at school call him. Blood dagger, obsidian fang. Considering his C minus on the calculus test, I want to tell him to do homework, but I know he wouldn't listen, even if he could hear me. Although I'm interested in finding out what he's reading so intently. I edge closer to the bed, but I can't angle myself to see the title on the cover of the book.
I do see a library barcode, which indicates that he must have left this dank hole at some point to visit the outside world. Clark's chipped black nails turn the page, revealing a black and white ink drawing. The image depicts a demon being devoured by fiery flames. Crosshatching creates twisted figures in the backdrop of corrupt souls thrashing in anguish. Tiny mouths open in soundless screams. I'm reminded of the girl with no eyes, and I quickly tear my gaze away. Instead, I read the text beneath. It's written in Latin, and my knowledge of the dead language is non-existent. I only studied French literature in school, since it directly related to my career choice. Translators are typically only well-versed in one language, and they translate from that language into their native tongue. Being Canadian and raised by French-speaking parents, fluency came naturally to me. But I never had much interest in learning additional languages, except for the basic Italian I memorized before embarking on a month-long trip with Catalina and Cindy. I suddenly wonder how Cindy is doing. Is she successful like Catalina is? How did she handle my disappearance? Did Catalina tell her I was alive, safely tucked away, where he could never find me? By the same token, how did she react to the news of my death? I have no family left to speak of, except for Jay's parents, and I assume that they were the ones to notify her. I feel a pang in my chest. I hadn't seen them since Jay's funeral. I sigh and shake my head. Catalina's arrival has made me nostalgic, unearthing memories best left forgotten. There's no point in dwelling in the past, allowing myself to worry about people I will never see again. My stomach churns at that thought, and I hurriedly return my attention to Clark. There are a few other, less ominous-looking texts strewn on the bed beside him. The bright yellow cover of Latin for Dummies strikes a sharp contrast against the sullen shades of bedding. Another book is about Latin translation. Clark should put this much effort into learning calculus. He's clearly smart, but his efforts are misguided. Why is he so interested in this book? Clark, honey, do you want to come out and watch some TV with us? Mrs. Yu's voice calls timidly from behind the closed door. Damn it, Rebecca, my name is Razor, Clark snaps. I snicker. I was close with Blood Dagger. I hear Rebecca's footfalls as she leaves. Jaw clenched, Razor resumes his reading. I drift back toward his desk. The illustrations are disturbing, with charcoal smudges giving them a dreamlike quality, making the images barely identifiable. This boy is obsessed with the occult, which can't be healthy. I remember seeing him once when I first moved into the building. He had seemed normal, happy even. He had been contentedly playing with his tablet in the lobby. At that time, he was wearing an innocuous red plaid shirt and blue jeans. It's only been two years, yet he has transformed completely. His bedroom, his appearance, and he clearly doesn't spend his free time playing Angry Birds anymore. 
As I scan the drawings, my eye is caught by one that is set aside from the rest. I move closer, squinting in the darkness. It shows a man, a figure, in black shading against a dark background, which makes the outline difficult to discern. The picture is of a man standing flush against a wall, with his dark coat billowing around him. I follow the line of his shoulder up to his head. He wears a bowler hat. He seems to be looking straight ahead, yet he has no face. It's the man from the basement, the shadow man. 15. The elevator summons me, dragging me up to the ninth floor. Dr. Favreau steps on and taps the button for the lobby. She must have another night shift. No wonder her poor son has issues. He's always left alone in the apartment under the guise of being homeschooled. He's far too young to be left alone. I wonder if he sits with his father, watching him, praying that he'll wake up, if only for the company. Sylvie gets off the elevator on the ground floor, nods at a passing security guard, and walks toward the exit marked Garage. The elevator stays on this floor. The lobby is empty. Elias isn't at his station. I peek into the library and glimpse a middle-aged couple browsing the shelves. They don't live within my range, and I don't think I've ever seen them before. They seem carefree and content, perusing the shelves and offering each other suggestions. I am glad to see that there is one marriage in this building that isn't falling apart. I'm more convinced now than ever that this is my curse. I must watch the lives of those around me as they disintegrate, unable to observe even the smallest happiness, such as the comfort of this loving couple. If only their happy home was within my elevator's range. The couple gathers their books, the husband rolling his eyes as his wife snatches a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey at the last minute. Arm in arm, they leave the library. The door gently drifts closed, leaving me alone with my thoughts once again. I return to the lobby, but Elias is still nowhere to be seen. I don't want to drop to the basement. I have been avoiding it at all costs. I suppose I could jump up to the second floor, but there's no one of interest there, except for the medium who is out of the city until his seance planned for tomorrow night. A seance I have every intention of attending. I peek into the guest suite. Catalina is there, sitting at the breakfast nook with Elias, settled directly across from her. Papers are strewn between them. Catalina has a determined glint in her eye. What about her? Catalina asks, tapping a photograph of Sabrina Highland. You mentioned before that Rachel was friendly with her. Friendly is a strong word, Elias says. He seems to be glowing. It must be a side effect of Catalina's undivided attention. I saw them talk to each other several times when Rachel first moved in. I stiffen. I hadn't realized we'd ever had company. Just how much does Elias see? Perhaps Catalina is on the right track, questioning him first. Elias continues. 
Rachel made it clear that she wasn't looking for friendship, especially not with someone like Sabrina. He says her name in a derogatory tone. I feel a spark of protectiveness for Sabrina. Had I really given off that impression of snobbishness? I hadn't wanted to make any friends in the building, and it had nothing to do with who they were. It had everything to do with who I was. I wonder if this is what Sabrina thought, too. Guilt rises like bile in my throat, and I cannot be rid of it. Can you elaborate on that? Catalina asks. Sabrina has her vices, alcohol to be specific. I wouldn't be surprised if she overuses prescription drugs, too. Elias's nasal voice is less comical now that I am seeing this side of him. He doesn't know what Sabrina is really going through. Although he does know most of it. After all, he is the one who books the guest suite for Roger's lover. He is the one who looks Sabrina in the eye when he greets her every day. So you're saying substance abuse is the reason Rachel cut off ties with her? Catalina says. Well, no. Rachel kept to herself. She never interacted with anyone in the building. At least, not to my knowledge. I was the only one she regularly spoke with. Catalina stares at him for a moment. I can almost hear her wondering how much of what Elias says is bullshit. What about Sabrina's husband, Roger? Catalina asks. I have never seen Rachel even look at him. Although, I've seen him look at her, Elias chortles. What is that supposed to mean? Catalina raises an eyebrow. Are you saying that Roger is unfaithful? No, no, not at all. I'm just saying that he appreciated the view of the other residents in the building, especially someone who looked like Rachel. I don't remember ever having seen Roger when I was alive. He was always working when Sabrina dropped by, unannounced. I wonder if what Elias is saying about his wandering eyes is even true, especially considering he's having an affair with a man. It doesn't escape my notice that he hasn't brought up Roger's affair. Catalina makes a note on her paper. I peer over her shoulder and see that the note isn't about Roger, but about Elias. Creepy is all she wrote. I snicker. This interview isn't about the residents in the building, or at least that isn't the only reason Catalina is meeting with Elias. She's also getting a feel of him trying to see if he is hiding anything. I cannot imagine why she's bothering with this. We already know who my killer is. Shouldn't Catalina be searching for links to him? Then again, maybe that is what she's doing. This thought is chilling. I realize that he may have hired someone to kill me. And I realize that there is a strong chance that the assassin wasn't working alone. This building is very secure, but it's easy to get in with a resident's permission. Who living in this building could be an accomplice to my murder? My thoughts wander to the stray glove I saw lying in the Highlands apartment. Anything else about Roger? Catalina is starting to sound slightly annoyed. I don't blame her. Not that I can think of, Elias says, scratching his chin. Just that he works a lot. 
He has a lot of business dinners, and I don't actually see him often, except when he's coming or going. That's about everything. Catalina is quiet for a moment, and she jots something down in her notebook. Elias studies her. Why haven't you asked me about her boyfriend? I jolt at that. Catalina looks just as surprised. You hadn't mentioned it, she says carefully. Hadn't I? Elias asks. Catalina's lips purse. Rachel had a boyfriend? This is news to me as well. There was a man who used to come to visit. He would stay late. Elias pauses, the air stiff with innuendo, but leave. He never did stay the night. He's talking about Luke. Embarrassment washes over me. I hadn't realized that people thought we were together in that way. Elias continues. He stopped dropping by a few months ago. Do you have a name for me? It will be in the visitor's log, Elias says. I'd like that name and a record of the times he visited, Catalina says. Elias beams at her. I'll get that to you immediately. I wish I could tell Catalina that Luke wasn't my boyfriend, that he was just a friend. My inability to communicate is even harder now that my best friend is here. So close, yet just out of reach. Catalina nods. I suppose that's all I'll be needing from you. She closes her notebook and looks pointedly at the door. You know who has been acting very suspicious? Elias doesn't wait for her answer. That man who moved into Rachel's condo, the relative who inherited the place. How so? Well, he has been asking all kinds of strange questions about the occupants of the building. He was asking me about Mr. and Mrs. Highland yesterday evening. Of course, I didn't tell him anything. Catalina gives him a pensive look. She opens her notebook and scrawls, Is Will Archer investigating murder? Well, she figured it out a lot faster than I did. My eyes trail after Elias as he leaves the guest suite. I cannot help but feel like a powerless outsider, simply observing. Even if I develop a great insight into the case, there isn't anything I can do about it. Although, if I can somehow figure out a way to communicate with the living, Alexei's seance is tomorrow night. If I can contact him, I will have finally found my way to interact with the living. I won't just be a shadow of my former self, damned to observe others as they move on with their lives. I'll have a purpose again or at least a reason to live in this afterlife. On that hopeful note, I am whisked away by the elevator. An elderly resident accompanies me on my ride, which ends at the fourth floor. She leans heavily on her cane, moving forward inch by inch, wheezing forcefully. I wish I could help her, but the pain of being inconsequential is not as great anymore. I have a purpose. I will communicate with Alexei tomorrow night, and I will have my closure. My good mood is further improved when I see that Melody is researching local women's shelters on the desktop in her husband's office. She's found one that is far from home, but not so far that getting there will be difficult. 
this is exactly what I had told her to do. Husbands often look for their runaway wives at the closest shelters. Sadly, many women think that once they've left, the battle is over. But that's when the fight truly begins. Depending on the abuser's determination, it might take years before the woman can actually move on with her life. Melody has found the shelter in Scarborough, which is discreet and has reasonably good security. She should be safe there. She's currently reading about the place, their programs, and how they help women to get back on their feet. The front door unlocks. Melody startles, her eyes wide and doe-like. Melody? Oliver calls out. Melody opens the browser history with trembling fingers. The processor is maddeningly slow. She highlights each web page she visited and selects remove. She minimizes the window, but not before I notice that she missed a page. The one for the Scarborough shelter. Oliver stands in the doorway. Melody climbs to her feet, her hands cradling her swollen stomach. What are you doing on my computer? Oliver asks. Melody trembles slightly. I was looking for a recipe for tonight. You mean you haven't made dinner already? What's that smell? Melody's lips twist upward into a semblance of a smile. Yes, I made dinner, but I was going to make dessert. I found a cute recipe for chocolate mousse on Pinterest. She sounds like she's reciting this, and I hope that Oliver doesn't notice. Oliver is silent, watching her. He doesn't move. He is perfectly still. You're home early, Melody says. Oliver grins broadly. I heave a sigh of relief. I wanted to get home to my Melly and the belly. He approaches her and gives her a big hug. I freeze, waiting for the catch. We don't need dessert tonight, baby. We can have some of the leftover apple pie from last night. Oliver drops his briefcase on the floor and leads Melody away from the computer. She still seems off kilter, but she follows Oliver to the door. I'm a nervous wreck just watching this. I can't imagine how difficult it must be for her to actually live it. Melody leaves the room. Oliver picks up his briefcase and deposits it on the chair beside him. He turns to the computer, opens the web browser, navigates to the history. The URL for the women's shelter is listed at the very top. Oliver's hands tighten into fists, his jaw clenches, and his cheeks stain crimson. Suddenly, he stands ramrod straight. His entire body relaxes. He loosens his fists. He twists his lips into a devastatingly handsome grin and ambles toward the kitchen. Melody is stirring the contents of a large black pot that rests on the stovetop. Dinner will only be ready in a half an hour. I didn't know you'd be home so early, Melody says. That's all right, baby, Oliver says in a sickly sweet voice. He reaches around Melody and takes two plates from the cupboard above her. Melody darts furtive glances toward him as he begins to set the dinner table. She gradually relaxes until she is bustling around the kitchen, putting the finishing touches on their dinner. She stirs the pot, utterly unaware 
of what simmers beneath. 16. I'm back in the basement. Catalina has brought me here, and now she stands surveying the hall. Her actions are similar to Will's, and I chastise myself for not figuring out sooner that Will was investigating my death. She walks the length of the corridor and peers into the stairwell, the unlocked fitness center, and the storage room. Because it is so difficult, theoretically, to get into the building, there are no locks on the various facilities. There are only deadbolts on the actual apartment doors. My eyes keep wandering down the corridor, but I remain as far from the storage unit as my range will allow. The girl with no eyes is eerie, with her misplaced eyes and soundless scream. Sylvie's husband is unsettling, with his sharp vibrations and powerful force field. But the shadow man, he is something else entirely. He doesn't look like the few ghosts I have seen before. He looks like something so dark and sinister that it has lost all of its humanity. I will do whatever it takes to avoid him. I'm relieved when Catalina finally hops back onto my elevator, which stops on the ground floor. The doors slide open to reveal Will standing in the lobby. He hesitates, but seems to think better of waiting for the next elevator. That would look suspicious, and after all, Catalina is a police officer. Although I find it interesting that she has failed to tell anyone that she is out of her jurisdiction. At first, I had assumed that she'd relocated to Toronto and was promoted to detective. That's how good a liar she is. But I overheard her taking a phone call with a friend last night. Apparently, she took some vacation days to investigate my death. I have to say, I can think of a million better ways to spend a vacation than investigating the murder of an agoraphobic nutjob. She let it slip during the phone call that when her captain found out that she was illegally investigating my death, he suspended her. Neither her friend nor I were happy to hear about this, though her friend got to be a lot more vocal about it. I pace the small elevator. I don't want Catalina to lose her job because she feels responsible for me. She might think that she has unfinished business here, because she's the only one who knows who killed my husband, and who likely killed me. But I don't want my death to ruin her life. Catalina and Will ride the elevator in taut silence. Catalina takes the opportunity to scrutinize Will. He does his best to avoid eye contact. The elevator finally stops at the sixth floor, and Will eagerly hops off. He looks taken aback when Catalina follows. He continues to walk at a snail's pace, surreptitiously peeking over his shoulder at her. Catalina hides a smirk as they both stop outside the Highlands apartment. Oh, are you visiting a friend? She asks sweetly. She knows that he isn't. I believe that Catalina shares my suspicion. Will plans to question the Highlands about my death. This is likely why Catalina is here also, given that, according to Elias, 
Sabrina is the only person in the building I ever interacted with socially. Will recovers quickly and replies, Oh, yeah, I'm visiting a friend for coffee. He moves on to the next apartment and knocks on the door. Catalina grins. The Yates couple lives there. They'll both be at work at this hour. Will flushes. His eyes dart about, searching for an escape. He ducks into the stairwell. Shaking her head, Catalina turns to apartment 604 and knocks. The door opens to reveal a fully made-up Sabrina, who is wearing a red silk dress that suggestively hugs her curves. Sabrina freezes in the doorway as she eyes her visitor. Her painted smile is thin. Can I help you? Catalina is all business. Yes, ma'am, you can. My name is Detective Catalina Marquez. I'm investigating the murder of Rachel Drake. I was hoping we could talk. Sabrina's eyes narrow. I'm not a suspect, am I? She asks in a sardonic tone. No one has been ruled out yet, Mrs. Highland. But I'm here because, according to the concierge, you may have had a unique relationship with the victim. Sabrina raises her eyebrows. Unique is one way of putting it. I haven't spoken with her since a little while after she moved in. I tried to befriend her, but she would have none of it. She sounds bitter. The victim was a severe agoraphobe who suffered from social anxiety issues. It likely wasn't personal. Sabrina looks genuinely shocked by this. She blushes. Come on in. Catalina strides into the condo. Her eyes dart back and forth, taking in the vast foyer and the living room beyond. Come, have a seat. Sabrina is all smiles. She's the picture of a perfect hostess. Catalina's shrewd eyes swivel to Sabrina. Sabrina's friendly, but it's so obviously insincere. Catalina reluctantly settles onto the sofa. You've been staying in the guest suite, haven't you? Sabrina says between gritted teeth. I've seen you around. I gasp, but being dead, no one notices. No wonder Sabrina has been sizing Catalina up. She thinks that she's the competition. She believes that Catalina is the one sleeping with her husband. So you're a detective, right? With which division? Sabrina asks. It seems as if Sabrina is interrogating Catalina. Catalina doesn't skip a beat. I'm actually on loan. Unfortunately, the details are confidential. She can't have Sabrina looking into her credentials, or she'll figure out that she has no right to be here, investigating a crime outside of her jurisdiction. It is clear that Sabrina knows Catalina is lying, but she doesn't know the truth. She must think that Catalina has come here with some pathetic story to check out the wife. And to be honest, Catalina is making this delusion seem very plausible. Sabrina stares at her for a moment. Would you like something to drink? Coffee or tea, perhaps? Hostility emanates from Sabrina in nearly palpable waves. No, thank you. I won't be long, Catalina says. It's probably a good idea to refuse any kind of beverage from this woman. 
Sabrina appears to be growing tired of this charade. I really don't know what I can tell you. I didn't know Rachel at all. Is it possible that your husband knew her? Sabrina's eyes narrow. Roger did not know her. If he had, he would have mentioned it to me. Sabrina gets a faraway look in her eye. She shakes her head almost imperceptibly. Now, if you'll excuse me, I am terribly busy and I must get back to my prior engagements. Catalina's lips part and her brows furrow, but she quickly composes herself. Yes, of course, I'll be on my way. If you think of anything, please give me a call. She hands Sabrina a small, plain white card with her name and phone number, handwritten neatly on it. My heart sinks. It does not look like a real business card. Sabrina leads Catalina to the door and closes it firmly behind her. She collapses against the wall, tears streaming down her cheeks. The elevator carries me away while Sabrina continues to sob silently. I worry all day about whether or not I'll be able to attend the seance tonight. All I need is one person to call the elevator, one person to have a midnight hankering for ice cream, and I could be torn away from my one chance at communicating with the living. As far as I know, Alexei hasn't booked any other seances. This will be my only opportunity. After witnessing Catalina's encounter with Sabrina, I tell myself that I cannot afford any distractions. I decide to ride the elevator up and down, up and down, as I plan for this evening. I cannot predict how the seance will work, and if Alexei, or Rasputin, will be using a spirit board. My first order of business will be to convince Alexei that I am not his client's dead wife, but the spirit of the woman who died in this building nine days ago. But then, what exactly do I want to tell him? He needs to find who killed me, but I have no idea where the police are in their investigation. Do they need help? Are they at a dead end? Are they even still investigating my death? Or have more urgent cases come up? I go over my game plan. There are many obstacles in communicating with Alexei tonight. First, I have to pray that my elevator will stay rooted on the second floor so I can attend. Then, I have to figure out how to communicate with Alexei and tell him my name. After that, I have to hope that he will contact the police and set up another seance with them. Assuming, of course, that they believe him and don't write him off as another mental case— too much of this is outside of my control. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Baby steps. I don't even know if he'll be able to hear me. Or see me. Smell me? I hope he won't be able to smell me because I haven't showered in over a week, and I'm sure the stench of decay would be overbearing. I laugh hysterically at my joke, only somewhat aware that I might be going insane. By the time it's quarter to midnight, I'm a complete wreck. The client has yet to arrive, and if he has, he must have decided to take the stairwell up the measly single flight. 
I've been trapped on the fourth floor since Oliver Boyden got home late from a night out with the guys. He seems to have a lot of those. I pace the hall fretfully, then decide to enter the Boyden apartment. I might as well kill some time before the seance. Oliver is in the kitchen rummaging through a drawer. Melody is in the living room, sitting stiffly and reading her book. Where is the damn bottle opener? Oliver shouts. Melody jumps up, her book tumbling from her grasp. She waddles into the kitchen. Let me look, she says. Oliver's eyes narrow. If I can't find it, what makes you think you can? I cannot believe how little it takes to set him off. Melody begins to tremble. You're tired and stressed from work. Don't tell me I'm tired and stressed. I know I'm tired and stressed. And it isn't from work. He lifts his hand. She whimpers. I am ripped away by the elevator. 17. A man and woman step into the elevator. I study them each in turn. They are both solemn. They are both silent and they are both dressed in varying shades of brown. They look like they stepped out of a sepia-toned photograph. The woman carries a bundle, something swathed in off-white cloth, but I can't tell what it is. I'm not sure I want to know. Alexei opens the door before they have a chance to knock. Welcome, he says. Thank you so much for fitting us in on such short notice. I'm Ben Hamstein, husband of the deceased, the man rambles. He extends a sweaty hand, but Alexei does not shake it. Instead, he turns to the woman. And who are you? I'm Isabel's sister, Clara, she says with a scowl. Thanks for introducing me, Ben. I was about to, Ben mumbles, but Clara doesn't seem to hear. Alexei nods, then ushers them both into his darkened living room. It is almost midnight, so we should get started, Alexei says in a hushed tone. He leads the couple to a round table he's recently set up in the center of the living room. Like everything else in this apartment, the table is black. There are three stools positioned around it. It's almost as if Alexei knew Ben would be bringing someone else with him. I shake my head. Alexei is a medium, not a psychic. Ben probably told him that someone would be accompanying him when they spoke over the phone earlier. Did you remember to bring an object that was dear to Isabel? Alexei asks. Ben almost forgot, but I didn't, Clara says. She doesn't seem to notice Ben's scowl as she hands Alexei the bundle. Alexei unwraps it slowly. It is a vintage porcelain doll wearing a white lace dress, which is yellowed at the fringes. The doll's eyes seem to follow me from across the room. Of course, it had to be the creepiest doll since Annabelle. Alexei reverently places it on the table. Alexei then lights a single black candle, which sits at the center of the table. The flickering light dances on his tattoos, making them seem like they've come to life, coiling and contorting across his pallid skin. 
Why is everything in here black? Clara asks. The shadows cannot collect where there is no light, Alexei says quietly. Clara and Ben exchange a glance. So, how does this work? Ben asks, tugging at his tie until it nearly chokes him. Alexei quietly returns his matchbox to his pocket. Then he says, have a seat. The pair exchange another glance before planting themselves on the rigid stools. Alexei turns his back to them and approaches a large onyx-colored chest that rests against the far wall. He reaches into it and pulls out a conical-shaped crystal on a short coiled chain. I have many different techniques for communicating with the dead. The technique we select will depend on the strength of the spirit. We begin with the pendulum, as it can detect most spirits, Alexei says. He dangles the chain from his long, bone-like fingers. Do you know what question you want to ask first? Qu question Ben tugs his tie yet again. Alexei stares at him. The candle flickers, and shadows dance across his gaunt face. Clara purses her lips. You didn't come up with any questions, Ben? Her attitude is grating. It's clear that she hadn't come up with any questions either. Uh, I... I just want to communicate with her. I don't have any specific questions, but I can come up with some, Ben says. Alexei does not look impressed. He sits on his stool, towering over the timid pair. Hold hands. Clara looks down at Ben's sweaty palms distastefully before taking them in hers. Alexei closes his eyes and begins to breathe deeply. In and out, in and out. I feel the hairs stand on the back of my neck, but I cannot tell if this is due to him or simply my fraught nerves reacting to the situation. Alexei opens his eyes. They are ice blue. I cannot remember if they had been that striking moments ago. Spirits, I call to you. I give you permission to come forth to speak. Isabel Hamstein, come to us. He holds out his hand and lets the crystal dangle on its chain. I wonder about its significance. It is remarkably still. I am surprised that Alexei, with his lack of muscular definition, is capable of holding it so still. Ben opens his mouth to speak, but seems to think better of it and snaps his mouth shut. Is there a spirit here? Alexei asks. Yes, I say. Nothing happens. I reach out to push the pendulum, but my fingers simply glide through it without any resistance. I ask again, is there a spirit here? Alexei repeats slightly louder, as if ghosts are hard of hearing. Yes, I say forcefully. This time, the crystal twitches. I focus all my energy on the crystal. I feel something, 
a strange tugging sensation deep in my chest. The pendulum swings back and forth. I did it. Clara gasps, and the couple grabs at each other. Ben begins to move backward. Do not break the circle, Alexei commands. Ben jerks back to his seat. Just as suddenly as it began, the pendulum stops swinging. It is deathly still, which defies the laws of physics. Show me what yes is, Alexei says. I'm not sure I understand. Yes, I say. Nothing happens. Yes, I shout. The pendulum swings back and forth as before. Is this Isobel Hamstein? No, I say. Again, nothing happens. No, I shout. The crystal jerks from side to side. Alexei's eyes widen and he frowns. What does that mean? Clara whispers. It is not Isabel, Alexei says. Ben gasps. Clara becomes deathly pale. I should have lied. I don't want them to stop. Is Isabel here? Alexei asks. The pendulum remains perfectly still. I glance around the room, but I'm alone. Yes, I say. This time, it swings back and forth on the first try. Alexei puts down the pendulum. Do not break the circle, he repeats, his accent thicker than normal. He goes back to the chest and gropes around inside, then pulls out a Ouija board and a pointer. He moves the candle to the edge of the table, then places the Ouija board atop the melted wax. He carefully positions the pointer at the center of the spirit board. The porcelain doll stares at me from its perch on the edge of the table. Ben and Clara look like they can barely contain their excitement. I am a horrible person. If I weren't stuck here, I'd be going straight to hell. Alexei looks at the couple with an unreadable expression on his face. If you see anything strange or out of the ordinary, close your eyes. Ben stares at him, his mouth agape. Clara looks affronted. Why on earth would we do that? Alexei speaks solemnly. You may have heard the expression, eyes are windows into the soul. That is not exactly true. They are actually doors. If you look directly at a spirit, you are inviting it in, and it will not be easy to evict. Ben releases a deep breath. It is unlikely you will be able to see anything, Alexei adds hastily. It is unlikely either of you have the gift, and you are far too old to have retained your childhood innocence. You should be fine. Ben doesn't look convinced. Clara's face is as pale as the cheeks of the porcelain doll that still sits on the table watching me. Alexei ignores their discomfort and settles onto his stool. Place your hands gently on the pointer. He demonstrates with his own elongated fingers. After some hesitation, Ben and Clara follow suit. Spirits of the other side, 
I gold do you. Alexei's voice is strangely alluring. I feel myself drawn closer to his side. I give you permission to speak through us. I am pulled even closer. My energy is focused into the tiny pointer. I have so many things I need to say, but that will have to wait. There is something far more urgent that needs to be addressed. The pointer slides, gradually shifting toward the fore. Four, Clara says helpfully. I push the slider again, as hard as I can, but it moves painstakingly slowly. Zero, Ben says with a frown. I draw the pointer to the final number. Seven, Clara says, brows furrowed. Alexei looks pensive but doesn't speak. Does he understand? Clearly they need to be pushed, because I don't know how much time Melody has. Something shifts, catching my eye. The room is nearly pitch black, but I can almost see something moving, just out of the candle's sphere of light. I shake my head and turn back to the board. H, Ben and Clara chant. Again, something moves. I peer into the darkness, but I cannot see anything. But I know something is there, watching, waiting for its turn with the spirit board. It circles the table just out of sight, searching for a weakness in the circle. Feeling myself growing weaker, I push the pointer again. E. It is Alexei who speaks this time, but his eyes are not on the board. They are staring, affixed to the shifting cluster of shadows. Can he see the spirit that is attempting to break the circle? I push again, using all my energy. L, they say. Ben shifts on his stool, his fingers breaking contact with the pointer for a mere second. The creature rushes to the table. It is in full sight now. It is the spirit from the basement, the spirit that came for me during my dying moments. The shadow man with no face. I expect it to reach for the pointer or for Alexei. Instead, it plunges deep inside Ben. Ben's body goes slack, his head lolling to the side. He shudders. He slowly raises his head. His face is veiled in darkness. Ben turns toward Clara, reaching out. He wraps his fingers around her pale, slender neck. Eyes wide, Clara's hands clutch at her throat. Her fragile fingers try to pry away Ben's strong, unrelenting hands. Spirit be gone, Alexei bellows. He towers over the table and in a single breath extinguishes the candle. The room plunges into darkness. I am rocketed back into my elevator. September 9th. Dear Diary, I haven't been able to sleep. The events are escalating, and it's keeping me up at night. Even my boss, Gregory, has noticed the stress I'm under. 
Monday, he called me into his office and asked if everything was all right at home. It was utterly humiliating. I lied and said that renovations were keeping me up late. He put a caring hand on my shoulder and gently suggested I take a few days off and go to a spa. I hesitantly agreed, but I don't have any intention of leaving the house. Not until I have my proof. Yesterday morning, I woke to discover that the Scrabble pillows were shredded. And I mean shredded. Jay is convinced it was Lon Chaney Jr. rebelling because I forgot to cut his claws or to feed him his Sunday night treat. But the slices in the fabric don't look like they could have been made by Chaney's tiny paws. They are thick and deep. I know that it wasn't Lon Chaney Jr. who destroyed this memento of our marriage. It was something else. I hear something in the hallway. It's daytime but I still need to investigate. I'm back. Something horrible just happened, and I decided it was time to tell Jay everything. I thought he was ready to hear the truth. When I went out into the hall, there was no one in sight, and I thoroughly investigated the rooms. It was in the bedroom. I saw something lying on the bed. I was overcome with dread but I approached it slowly. It was a dead bird on my pillow. Its neck was twisted at an unnatural angle. It was not just any kind of bird. It was a blue jay. Jay came into the bedroom, swore, and went to get a garbage bag. I watched from a healthy distance as he disposed of the bird, and I helped him to strip the bed. I loaded the washing machine, poured in a considerable amount of bleach, and set the cycle to heavy. Jay watched me from the doorway, leaning against the frame, arms crossed, eyes narrowed. That's when I thought it would be a good time to tell him my suspicions. I think our house is haunted, I said. Jay frowned. Is this because of the bird? It's obvious that your cat did it. My cat. Whenever Lon Chaney Jr. did something wrong, he suddenly became my cat. But whenever we were snuggled up watching a movie, it was Jay that he chose to cuddle with. I didn't want to start a fight, so I bit my tongue. Chaney has never killed anything before. And it isn't just the bird. It's the floorboards creaking at night. It's the torn pillows. Lon Chaney Jr. has been acting strangely, sniffing around the house. Jay raised an eyebrow. You do know that all these strange occurrences can be blamed on the cat? We've just moved into a new home, and it's very possible that the previous owners had a pet. Lon Chaney Jr. might be acting out because he can still smell it. Wouldn't he just pee on everything? Not put a dead blue jay on your pillow? I think it's symbolic. What? You think that some evil spirit is haunting our house and that it wants to kill me? And instead of doing so, it leaves cryptic messages in the form of dead birds and misplaced hairbrushes? Jay shook his head in disbelief. He turned and walked out. He left the house, and I don't know when he's coming back. 
I don't have rock-solid proof of a supernatural being inhabiting this house. Because of this, Jay won't believe me until it does something more drastic. But by then, it could be too late. 18. I'm relieved to discover that I'm able to return to Alexei's apartment immediately after my expulsion. The overhead lights are on, and there is no sign of the Shadow Man. He must have also been driven out of the apartment by Alexei. I am the only spirit haunting this room. For now. I can't be sure the Shadow Man won't return like I did. Clara has applied a bag of frozen peas to her slim neck. Dark bruises spread across her pale, almost translucent skin. She tosses her brother-in-law a nervous glance. Wah, what was that? Ben asks. His glasses are off, and he's rubbing his eyes in large, concentric circles. Alexei paces, seemingly unable to keep still. His eyes dart around the room, peering into the corners. Another spirit pierced the veil between our worlds. This one was not as friendly as the last. He thinks I'm friendly. But the first spirit, it was communicating with Isabel? Clara asks in a husky voice. Straight down to business, then. She is not nearly disturbed enough that her brother-in-law nearly murdered her moments ago. It would appear so, Alexei says. Is he being deliberately vague? Does he know I was lying? Although it appears that he cannot see me, it seemed like he had seen the shadow man. 407-H-E-L, Ben says. What could that mean? Isabel and I were married on April 6th, and the 7th would have been our first day of marital bliss. Maybe she was referring to that? Alexei stares. Clara delves into her purse and pulls out a planner. On April 7th, I had to go to the dry cleaners to pick up my dress for the gala I hosted. But that wasn't until the 8th. Was Isabel a part of that gala? Ben asks. No. Again, Alexei simply stares. H-E-L. Hello? Maybe she was greeting us? Clara says. I was trying to say help. Remarkable what difference a single letter makes. Perhaps she is with great Aunt Helen, although that old bag definitely isn't in heaven. Clara is distraught. H-E-L. L? My wife isn't in hell, is she? Ben becomes equally distraught. This is hell. Apparently, Alexei feels the same way, because he stands up abruptly and says, A thousand apologies for the failure of this seance. You should be leaving now. Ben and Clara reluctantly rise. Alexei ushers them to the front door. He opens it wide and all but shoves the couple through. Can we try again another time? Clara asks. I am afraid that is not a possibility, Alexei says. My heart sinks. 
Will we be getting a refund? Alexei slams the door shut, muffling the rest of Ben's question. He returns to the table and pauses. Help? He wonders aloud. Yes, yes. I obviously wasn't spelling helicopter. There are only so many possibilities. Yes, help, I say to him. Apartment 407, go. Alexei shakes his head. He gathers the Ouija board and deposits it back into the chest. He removes a bundle of herbs. It looks like sage. He lights a match and begins to burn the bundle. He walks around the room, waving the burning sage in front of him. My nostrils fill with the acrid smoke, and even though I don't breathe, I feel as though I am suffocating. I soar from the room into the hall where the air is clear and I am myself again. I sigh. I haven't encountered sage before in my afterlife, but I suspect that I won't be able to enter Alexei's apartment again until the scent has faded. It's a little past midnight, which is usually quiet. I go into apartment 207, but I am greeted by the sound of moaning and loud thumping. I quickly leave. That leaves apartment 201, which belongs to the concierge. I have not entered this apartment before. The difference between this unit and the others in the building is quite startling. The coffee tables are scuffed with ringed watermarks coating the glass surface. The couch has what looks like an old spaghetti stain right on the center cushion. The floor rug is threadbare and looks like it's one sweep of the vacuum away from disintegrating. It's clear that Elias doesn't have the same amount of money to throw around on luxury items as the other residents. I realize that Elias probably rents the apartment for free as one of the perks of his position. I peek into his bedroom but Elias isn't home. Even if he were, watching someone sleep isn't riveting entertainment. I'm pulled up to the ninth floor, then to the basement by the insomniac gym rat. I don't want to stay in the basement, especially in the wee hours of the morning, so I hop up to the ground floor. Catalina is in her guest suite, but she isn't sleeping. She's chugging the last dregs from her coffee pot. From the looks of it, she's been scanning through files on her computer. I lean over her shoulder, and I see that she's looking at my personal logs for my work at the crisis hotline. I'll bet she'd had no trouble hacking my password. She must suspect that my killer was in contact with me. What better way to reach an agoraphobe in a high-security building than by telephone? I haven't thought about my mystery phone call since before my death. Catalina needs to identify who made that call. The person knew my real name, said he was coming for me. And then later that night, I died? It can't be a coincidence. Catalina's eyes start to drift shut, but she catches herself and shakes her head. Sighing, she resumes reading the logbook. I worry about her. She needs sleep. I don't want her to get sick. I don't want her to put herself in danger. What if she finds my killer, but she's too tired 
too sleep-deprived to protect herself from him. I stay with her long after she finally drifts off. 19. Clark slouches in front of the bathroom mirror. I barely recognize him without his makeup, but I know that the U's only have one child. Clark has his own bathroom, which is just off his bedroom. The sink is speckled with caked makeup. Tubes of white foundation, mascara, and eyeliner litter the countertop. I'm surprised that his parents allow him to keep his bathroom this messy. Although, from observing their interaction the other night, it's clear to me that they're too terrified of him to apply any kind of strict parenting tactics. Clark is short and thin, nearly all bone, with little muscle. He looks years younger without his makeup, much closer to his true age of 14. But it's his expression as he studies himself in the mirror that gives me pause. His fine facial features are twisted into an expression of revulsion and hate. He has just showered, and he is molding his hair with gel, which does more to make it look greasy than to actually manipulate the fine strands. I wonder if that is his goal. He takes the tube of foundation and squeezes a glob onto his palm. He rubs his hands together, then applies it to his face, methodically rubbing it in until his entire visage is ghostly white. He applies dark blush to his cheekbones, highlighting them and camouflaging the remnants of his youthful baby fat. He sweeps red eyeshadow to his eyebrows and carefully blends it under his eyes. The overall effect is one of exhaustion and sleep deprivation. Clark carefully applies thick eyeliner, creating a Cleopatra-like effect. He adds thick layers of mascara, one on top of the next. Then, he carefully stencils black lip liner around the contour of his lips, followed by a crimson shade of lipstick that he seals with a kiss against the grimy mirror. The effect is eerie. He resembles a 1990s Marilyn Manson, but without the flair of an artist expressing himself. He reminds me of the faint echo of a sound which has reverberated against several walls and has lost its power and magnitude. Clark, who has now become Razor, leaves the bathroom and slips into thin black leggings and tall leather boots. He puts on a skin-tight red tank top that zips down the front. He shoots himself a smirk in the full-length mirror that's nailed to the back of his bedroom door, then saunters out into the hall. Clark? I mean, Razor. Rebecca greets him the instant he opens the door. It's clear that she's been hovering. Rebecca? Clark nods civilly. Good morning, she says, ignoring the obvious fact that it's the afternoon. Clark goes into the kitchen, strides past his father without a word, and snatches a piece of toast from a plate on the counter. He bites into it, allowing the crumbs to fall onto the spotless floor. Rebecca grimaces, but she doesn't say a word. Clark spits a mouthful of toast into the sink. It's cold. Rebecca's eyes widen. Oh, well, um, I made it this morning, and it's been out for a few hours, waiting. Clark interrupts her. Whatever, I'm going out with friends. I don't know when I'll be back, so don't wait up. I can't imagine this kid having friends.
Charles exchanges a glance with his wife before speaking. Now, young man, you will be back by your curfew, which is eleven o'clock. Whatever, Clark says again. He slams the front door behind him. I am forced to ride the elevator down with this sullen teenager. He spends the entire descent taking selfies, pouting for the camera and rearranging his hair to make sure it is the perfect level of messy yet chic. I roll my eyes. Clark flips Elias off as he exits the elevator. Elias tenses but doesn't react. His eyes follow Clark as the boy saunters across the lobby. Elias's usual smile is nowhere to be seen, and he wears a guarded expression. Clark shoves through the double doors without giving him a second glance. I drift into the guest suite. Once again, I find Catalina poring over her files. She has thin, dark circles under her eyes, which are the only indication that she didn't get enough sleep. Her hair is pulled back in a ponytail that is so tight it stretches the skin on her forehead. The TV is set to the news station with the volume down low. The broadcaster is discussing local events. A music festival I cannot go to that I wouldn't have gone to even if I were still alive. Years ago, Jay and I took a road trip to go to that same music festival. I smile at the thought. We got there early, set up our tent, and then hardly ever left it the entire weekend. I tear my gaze away from the television and move closer to Catalina. She's currently scrutinizing a file on Sabrina. There are many questions scrawled across the page, Questions about Sabrina's hostility, her friendship with me, her relationship with her husband. Lost in thought, Catalina taps her pen against the desk. She seems to come to a decision about something. I wish I could ask her what she's thinking. Catalina leaves the suite and goes straight to my elevator, riding it up to the seventh floor. She doesn't hesitate before knocking on my apartment door. Will swings it open almost immediately. My husband's face wears a wary expression. Let's cut to the chase, Catalina says. I know why you're here. Will looks guarded. I'm not sure what you mean. My brother's wife just died. I know you're investigating your sister-in-law's death. And I know that you think that her killer might be the same person who killed your brother. Am I right? Will freezes. He looks Catalina up and down, then nods silently. He gestures for her to enter the apartment, closing the door behind her. What gave me away? He finally asks. I've been talking to people, different residents from around the building, and they've mentioned that you've been asking them similar questions. It didn't take me too long to figure out what you're up to. I am a detective, after all. At that, Will produces a small smile. So, I've been thinking. It might be beneficial if we join forces, combine our investigations. Two heads are better than one, and all that crap. Will studies her. Are police officers allowed to do that? Consult with the public? Catalina stares down at her hands for a few moments before looking Will straight in the eye. Well, Technically, I am out of my jurisdiction, as I may have mentioned before. From Will's expression, 
I can tell that she had definitely not mentioned that before. The local police didn't actually invite me. I came here on my own. I knew your brother and his wife, and I was one of the investigating officers assigned to his murder. Why is she downplaying our friendship? She doesn't mention that we were roommates for three years or that we went to university together. She doesn't mention how we met in an intro to psych course because I tripped over her backpack that she'd rudely left strewn across the aisle in Science Hall 302. She doesn't mention that not only had I tripped, but I'd fallen down the aisle's steps, smacking my head hard on the cement floor. She doesn't mention that I was knocked unconscious, and she was the one to call 911. She doesn't mention that she spent the afternoon in the emergency room with me, apologizing over and over while I pretended to suffer from memory problems. She doesn't mention her role after Jay's death, that she was my only support, the only person I could trust. Why doesn't she mention any of this? I need to show you something. Will leads her out of the living room, down the short hallway, to the door to my, his, office, which is shut. He hesitates, then gestures that she should enter ahead of him. The look on Catalina's face is priceless. Her eyes bulge and her breath catches. Will's collage on the wall has grown, and it now looks like a patchwork quilt of newspaper clippings, scraps of paper with notes, and colorful strings linking different people together. It's clear that he spent hours, days even, on this project. Catalina schools her expression and steps closer, inspecting the images plastered to the wall. Sabrina's beaming face. Dr. Sylvie Favreau's somber expression. A professional photo printed from the hospital website. A candid picture of Clark smoking in the parking garage. Elias, hovering by the elevator bay. Roger, returning from a late-night tryst. These are the residents of the building? Catalina says, but it sounds like a question. Will sighs, rubbing a hand over the day-old stubble that sprinkles across his jawline. Yes, I believe someone in this building killed Kay. 20. The elevator's poor timing is slowly driving me mad. It takes me to the second floor where Alexei steps on. He violently stabs the four button with his index finger. Relief washes over me. He's figured out my message. My excitement is tinged with worry. I hope that Melody is all right. There were no ambulances last night, so I don't think that Oliver has seriously hurt her although I can't know that for certain. Alexei mutters under his breath during the two-flight climb. On the fourth floor, I struggle to keep up with his long strides as he glides down the hall. He stops at apartment 407. He seems to fight an internal battle before finally tapping the shiny brass knocker three times. Melody appears in the doorway. I dart around Alexei so I can get a better look at her. She's standing on two legs, and she seems to be fully intact. I sigh with relief. Hi, can I help you? To my dismay, I spot a bruise under her right eye, which is slightly swollen. Alexei scowls. 
his eyes lingering on her bruise. Honey, who is it? Oliver's voice comes from the other room. Melody looks at Alexei expectantly. I am Alexei Utkov, your neighbor from downstairs. Melody looks confused. How can I help you? She asks again. Oliver appears in the doorway behind her. His eyes widen in unadulterated excitement. Rasputin? You live in my building? Oliver sounds like a child in a candy store. What are you waiting for, Melly? Invite the man in. Alexei's ashen skin colors slightly, giving a rosy hue to his otherwise deathly complexion. He enters the apartment, furtively scanning his surroundings, taking in the tidy apartment with the homey touches. Have a seat, Oliver exclaims. Would you like something to drink? Melly, get the man something to drink. A glass of water would be fine, Alexei says. Absorbing his surroundings, he perches on the edge of the sofa. This apartment is the polar opposite of his own, with its warm colors and soft, inviting furniture. Melody hurries into the kitchen, and I hear the water running. I can't believe you're here. I've seen every episode of your show. I had no idea that you lived in the building. Are you new to the area? Oliver is speaking very fast. It looks like Luke has a rival for biggest Rasputin fan. Oliver's reaction would endear me to him, if I didn't know firsthand that he beats his pregnant wife. Alexei shakes his head. No, I have lived here for years. Oh, Oliver loses his steam. He picks at a cuticle with his thumbnail. He seems to be at a loss for what to say. I see the moment when he realizes that he doesn't know why Alexei is in his apartment. It's unlikely that Alexei popped in for a visit with complete strangers. Do you know my wife, Melody? Oliver asks. No, we just now met for the first time. Oliver seems very puzzled, but he doesn't want to be rude and ask his guest why he is here. I chuckle. He probably doesn't want Alexei to realize he has the wrong apartment and leave. So, you know more about me than I know about you, Alexei says, his tone friendlier than I thought him capable. What do you do? Oliver grasps onto this topic like a lifeline. I'm a software engineer. Ah, so the next time I have problems with Wi-Fi, I will know who to call. Oliver bristles at this assumption. Before he can correct him, Melody returns from the kitchen and places a glass of ice-cold water on a coaster in front of Alexei. She takes a seat opposite the men. She leans back slightly and places a hand on her watermelon baby. When are you expecting? Alexei asks. In about two months, December 14th. We've got the nursery all set up, but we still have to finish baby-proofing the apartment. Melody glows with excitement, and a little smile dances upon her lips. I said I'd get around to it. You don't have to go around telling everyone. Oliver snaps. Melody's face falls. Her gaze meets the floor, which is no easy feat, given the size of her stomach. Alexei glances between them, but he doesn't say anything. So, what brings you here? Oliver finally asks. The novelty of having a minor celebrity in his house is finally waning. 
I held the seance last night. Melody gasps loudly. Here? Melody, let the man finish, Oliver says. Well, was it in this building? Alexei nods. And? I was meant to reach the deceased wife of a man, my client, but I contacted someone else instead. I believe it may have been that woman who was killed in the elevator. Well, he's intuitive after all. That still doesn't explain why you're here, Oliver says. During the seance, we were interrupted. Alexei doesn't say by whom or by what, which is good, because Melody is looking a little green around the gills. The only message that came through was 407-H-E-L. I am not sure what that means, and I thought it could be an apartment number. 407 could represent a million things, Oliver says reasonably. It could be a date. Uh, uh, he can't even think of anything else. Of course, those were my thoughts exactly. Alexei says, but I thought I would be remiss not to check out Department 407 and see for myself. But what do you think the H-E-L represents? Oliver asks thoughtfully. Could be anything, Alexei says nonchalantly. Again, he glances over at Melody, at her downcast expression, at her bruised face. Melody's face lights up and I know that she knows what the H-E-L stands for. She hides her expression before Oliver notices. You said that you communicated with the woman who died in the elevator? The one who lived on the seventh floor? Alexei nods. Rachel Drake. I was wondering if you knew her. That could explain why she wanted me to come here. Melody opens her mouth to speak, but Oliver interjects. We didn't know her. Apparently, she was a shut-in, no friends or family, and she spent all her time in her apartment, ever since her husband was murdered. That's what they've been saying on the news anyway. They've been talking about my past on the news? Why is this the first time hearing of it? I begin to pace the stretch of living room beside the couch. Of course, this makes sense, a brutally murdered white woman living in a wealthy apartment building in downtown Toronto. Of course, there would be significant news coverage. I'd only caught a glimpse days ago, but it's still disconcerting to realize that the world knows my secrets and that all the secrecy, the lies, the safety I built up during my life has been torn down after my death. Oliver continues, so none of us knew her here. She didn't talk to anybody. His tone is very final. Of course, it was just one possibility. Alexei stands. Well, thank you for your hospitality. I should get going. I have a series of appointments to attend to today, and I do not want to be late. What? He can't leave now. Not when he's so close. Melody struggles to her feet. It was a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Utkoff. If you ever want to visit again, feel free to drop by. Alexei glances at her bruise, then averts his gaze. Thank you for your open invitation. 
I really must be going. Oliver cuts in, leading Alexei to the door. Melody places her hand to her chest and walks in the opposite direction, toward the open window. She gazes out at the muggy, pollution-ridden street. Rachel, she breathes. She knows. Wow, that was chilling, wasn't it? Will Alexei be able to help Melody? Will Catalina be able to solve Rachel's murder? Tune in to our next episode to see what happens. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.